0: It's Hoops Tonight presented by FanDuel. The NBA season is kicking into gear and there's no better place to get in on the action than with FanDuel. The app is safe and secure. Getting your money out is super easy. You can jump into the action at any time during the game with live betting. And I love building those same game parlays. And FanDuel is now live in Ohio. So use promo code JasonT and download the FanDuel app today to start making every moment more. 21 plus in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Virginia, and Ohio. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona. Call 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. Call 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. Visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas. Call 1-877-770-STOP in LA. Visit www.mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Dial one 877 8 HOPENY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369 in New York. Call one 800 522 4700 in Wyoming, or visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. Happy Sunday, everybody. I hope all of you guys are having a great weekend so far, although technically I'm recording this shortly before midnight. On Saturday night, we have a jam-packed show tonight. A highly entertaining game between the Lakers and the Warriors, despite Steph Curry and LeBron James both missing the game. I also have some thoughts about the Gary Payton fiasco surrounding that trade and some of the shenanigans that the Portland Trail Blazers may or may not have been engaging in. And then in the back half of the show... Luca and Kyrie make their debut together in an overtime loss to the Sacramento Kings. And I've got a lot of thoughts on just the initial impressions on Kyrie Irving with the Dallas Mavericks, as well as the Sacramento Kings, who, uh, on the strength of a big performance from De'Aaron Fox, notched a big win. You guys know the drill. Before we get started, subscribe to the Volumes YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our videos. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss any show announcements. And if for whatever reason you guys miss one of these videos and you can't get back over to YouTube to finish... Don't forget you can get them wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. And last but not least, you guys have heard me talk about GameTime, the fastest-growing ticketing app in the United States. If you're looking to get out to any NBA, NHL, NFL playoff games, or even a concert, GameTime has amazing last-minute deals on tickets to all of these. I've told you guys about the great experience I had uh, two weeks ago when I went to go see— or last week when I saw Oregon, uh, the Arizona Wildcats finally get revenge— on the Oregon Ducks in McHale Center, the amazing experience I had there. Uh, I also would encourage you guys to go check out Dead and & Company and their final tour this year. If you've ever seen John Mayer, the, the, uh, uh, the pop artist, when he plays with Dead & Company, he's very blues-heavy, very guitar-heavy. If you're into that sort of thing, you'd really like it. I'm going to see him twice, uh, once in Phoenix and once in San Francisco. Hop on the GameTime app, see if you guys can find some tickets uh, to that concert. No matter where you live, Get out and have some fun this week. Download the Game Time app, enter your email and redeem code HOOPS for $20 off your first purchase. Terms apply. Again, enter your email and the code HOOPS, that's H O O P S, for $20 off. Download Game Time today. Last minute tickets, lowest price guaranteed. All right, let's talk some basketball. So LeBron James was out, Anthony Davis did not play well. Really, in any facet of the game, was losing contested rebounded battle, rebound battles. He could not finish around the rim. Could not make his jump shot. Just was having a nightmare game. Aside from a handful of big defensive plays down the stretch, and the Lakers won a game on the road against a team that was twenty-one and six at home coming into the night. Now, obviously, Steph was out, but. You're not gonna have you're not gonna hear that excuse get thrown away uh, thrown around in the Warriors locker room when LeBron James missed the game. And this is a Lakers team that was what, 25 and 31 coming into the game. But, you know, the theme of this uh, uh show as it pertains to, or the theme of this game, I should say, as it pertains to the Lakers, is margin for error. When I covered the Lakers before I worked for the volume, I used to always say on my show, I would say that if the role players played well alongside LeBron James and Anthony Davis, they would beat the shit out of you. And then if the role players played okay, they'd win by 10, 15 points. And if the role players played poorly, the game could go either way. But that was based on the roster before the Russell Westbrook trade. Now again, I way too much blame has been associated with Russell Westbrook as it pertains to the Lakers' struggles as opposed to the Russell Westbrook trade and the talent that was sent out. Again, in that deal, they lost Kyle Kuzma. A big forward that was a great two-way player. Kentavious Caldwell-Pope, one of the best role-player two-guards in the league. In the ensuing salary crunch, they lost Alex Caruso, one of the best guard defenders in the league, who had great offensive chemistry with LeBron James, shot over 40% from three his last year with the Lakers, was great cutting to the rim off the ball. Lots of, uh, of synergy that those players had alongside LeBron James and Anthony Davis. And when those guys went out, that talent level dipped below whatever that, you know, uh, absolute minimum they needed to be a functional basketball team. And Russell Westbrook, in his declined phase of his career, was not good enough to make up for that talent that went out the window. And what happened with the trades, and we're going to talk a little bit about the downside of them waiting this long here in a little bit, but what happened with those trades is you brought back in enough talent on the uh, from the role players to bring them back above that minimum level, and now they look a lot more like a, a functional basketball team. Now, the role players are not always going to play that well. Role players are always a little bit more inconsistent than stars are. That just kind of comes with the territory. But what you saw tonight was with them playing really well, they were able to allow anthony davis to struggle in all of those phases of the game and to allow lebron james to rest his foot hopefully up until the uh, the trade deadline if they or excuse me the all-star break if they can rest him to the all-star break they can get him 12 full days off through the sunday of the all-star game then ramp him up for a few days before the rematch uh, rematch with the uh with the warriors uh, the following thursday but that margin for error did not exist before this trade deadline and, and you're seeing why I've been preaching so much about that. Because as a result of not having that margin for error before this, you had to run LeBron James into the ground. And, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that later, but this is why it's so important to have all of that talent in the other areas of the roster. I always talk about all the different responsibilities that have to be filled on a basketball court. Role players are monumentally important in those areas. And you saw that tonight for the Lakers. Now, um, I want to talk a little bit about the game plan uh, that the Lakers used, and then we'll talk about the specific role players. So, tactically in basketball, every coach goes into a game with a game plan, right? And for this particular game, especially since Steph Curry was out, it opened up some options for the Lakers to be particularly aggressive on defense. And so what they did in this game is they took Anthony Davis and Rui Hachimura, and then in the bench lineups, Jared Vanderbilt and Wenya Wenya Gabriel, and they basically had them completely ignore Kevon Looney and Draymond Green when they were on the floor, and also Jermichael Green and Jonathan Kamingo when they were on the floor. So they were lingering around the paint. Then what they did with all of the guards is they denied them the ability to come off of those dribble handoffs and wide pin downs. Now, in basketball, they call it top locking. But basically what that means is, is like, screen's over here. I'm guarding this guy. Rather than locking and trailing, which would mean I'd get behind him and try to stay attached, I'm top locking, which means I'm getting between him and the screen. And basically giving up a back cut at the expense of taking away his ability to come off the screen. Now, in theory, you think you're gonna get back cut all day long, but what's happening behind those back cuts? Anthony Davis is waiting there, Rui Hachimura is waiting there, Jared Vanderbilt and Weny Gabriel are waiting there. So essentially the Lakers ignored Draymond Green and Kevon Looney and the other Warriors non-shooters to allow their guards to overplay every single screening action that Golden State used in the game and it shut down most of their motion offense. I thought it was really, really smart on their end and it actually led the Lakers to holding the Warriors to 26 or fewer points in three of the four quarters and then they made just enough offensive plays down the stretch Anthony Davis made a couple big defensive plays they ended up getting the win now, I have some specific ideas in mind for how to counter that sort of thing. We'll get to that when, they talk, when we talk about the Warriors. But I do want to stay on the Lakers for a little bit. Lots of the older Lakers played well. Like Dennis Schroeder had 26 points. Austin Reeves like completely shut down Clay Thompson down the stretch of this game. He's always been an underrated defensive player uh, in this league. But I, w- I want to focus on each of the brand new Lakers for just a minute. So I thought D'Angelo Russell was really good. He defended well, started the game on Clay. made enough plays offensively to be a net positive uh, Anthony Davis was not screening well for him. Again, we talked about this earlier. Anthony Davis struggled in every single phase of the game. Um, so he wasn't getting those downhill opportunities that really open up the pick and roll for him, but he still made quite a few plays. I was talking with Carson. You guys have seen him come on the show before, uh, in a text message thread, uh, during the game. And he was just saying how D'Angelo Russell never looks rushed when he's in a screen. And I, I noticed that too, in the game, because Golden State was pressuring the hell out of the ball and and to the credit you know we talked about Anthony Davis's screening I want to credit the Golden State guards as well because they did a really nice job staying attached and fighting over those screens. But even with that, D'Angelo Russell did a really nice job just staying slow, staying under control, and making just enough offensive plays to be a net positive. He made a huge three down the stretch of this game. He had a really nice and one in traffic down the stretch of this game. Honestly, it was a breath of fresh air to see a real skill guard in that backcourt. Again, D'Angelo Russell's not my favorite skill guard in the NBA, but it's about fit and it's about need and just seeing that type of offensive skill put into a backcourt that completely lacked it was really refreshing tonight. Um, Jared Vanderbilt, I said uh, on, I can't remember which episode of our our show I said it in, but he was my favorite player in that uh, trade deadline deal because he's a real athletic forward. Like Rui Hachamur is more of an offensively minded big forward, but Jared Vanderbilt's like a legit, like dirty work, just monster of an athlete that plays at the power forward position. And you saw him just completely wreck that game on both ends of the floor. Um, He had uh, four—I told you guys coming into uh, the— when we did our first preview of the Lakers trade that he was averaging four offensive rebounds per 36 minutes. He grabbed two of them tonight in just 17 minutes and played excellent defense, finished the game with 12 points, eight rebounds, and four assists in just 17 minutes which is an outrageous box score. If I were to extrapolate that out to a 36-minute shift, 25, 17, and 8. I told you guys uh, right when the trade went down that I thought he was a much better version of Wenyan Gabriel, and you guys all got to see what that looks like tonight. Lakers fans are going to love him, and honestly, Darvin Ham needs to find more than 17 minutes for him. He just played him two shifts in this game, one in the middle of each half. I'd like to see them find a way to just kind of fit him into the game a little bit longer. Uh, Rui also played extremely well, 16 points and 7 rebounds. Um, doesn't seem like much in the box score, but it was deeply impactful. You know, one of the things that I really liked about bringing in Jared Vanderbilt is it creates a positional battle. Uh, I'll give you an example. So, like, when I signed at Arizona Christian after my second year in junior college, I was an all-conference player in JUCO. They brought me into Arizona Christian, and I took a starting spot away from a player that had an all-conference selection the previous year at the small forward position. Um, And his name was Jordan. Very good player. He ended up starting a bunch of games that year. I ended up starting a bunch of games that year. But we battled every single day in practice. And in the games, we all brought our absolute very best because we knew that like, if I didn't have it that night, Jordan was getting the minutes. And if Jordan didn't have it that night, I was getting the minutes. You know what I mean? It was like a real positional battle between two really good forwards that had track records of success in the past. And so as a result, it actually forced us all to be on the top of our game at all times. And that's kind of the way I looked at it. Like no Jared Vanderbilt, Rui Hachimura is really the only forward on the roster. He's getting all the minutes. So there's less motivation to be dialed in on the glass or, or to defend at an extremely high level. And I thought this was Rui Hachimura's best defense and rebounding game of his entire Lakers tenure so far. And I think a big part of that is that positional battle with Jared. You know, if he's not playing well, if he's missing those shots and he's not contributing on the defensive end and he's not grabbing rebounds, Darvin Ham's going to pull him. And Jared Vanderbilt's going to get those minutes. And like just like in any industry, competition is good. It actually drives success from everybody involved. Um, Another thing that uh, Rui did really well tonight was just rescuing possessions. He had a couple of late clock threes, a couple of one-dribble pull-ups on possessions that broke apart. I always talk about rescue possessions uh, or offensive players and their ability to rescue possessions as the difference between good offenses and great offenses. Just squeezing an extra four or five points out a game is the difference between a 111 offensive uh, offensive rating and a 117 offensive rating, right? And that's the difference between a middle-of-the-pack offense and a great offense, right? So getting that type of offensive production from Rui is really going to help this team, especially when they get in the playoffs and the easy opportunities go away. Uh, Malik Beasley had a rough shooting night like he's 0 for 6 from 3 but even he made some big plays attacking the rim he had a nice little floater push shot in the first half and then in the second half he made a drive driving layup and then missed another that occupied the rim protector allowing uh, Jared Vanderbilt to get an easy offensive rebound put back and his shot quality was great uh, um, so in the long run I, I do believe he's going to make a lot of shots and fit really well. So a lot to be optimistic about for Laker fans after tonight, obviously winning a big game on the road, a must win without LeBron with Anthony Davis, not playing well. Um, But I do want to talk really quick about LeBron's foot because uh, I think it was Chris Haynes reported that LeBron's foot has been uh, He's been experiencing quote unquote, unbearable pain. Now, uh, Rob Polinka did come out and say that the imaging that they recently got done was clean. So I think it's mainly just soreness, Uh, but I do, you know. This I, I, I want to be clear. Rob Palinka did an amazing job at this trade deadline. Zooming out to the Rui Hachimura trade to what happened at the deadline, Rob did a great job. So I want I want to set that as our our initial kind of like basement for this conversation. Um, but a couple of things: the uh, Mobamba trade, who Mobamba didn't play tonight, but the Mobamba trade was unrelated to the summer that could have been made even if they made a deal this summer. The Rui Hachimura trade was unrelated to this summer. They could have made that trade at this deadline even if they didn't make it during the summer. So the only real difference is is like let's compare, you know, Buddy Hield and Miles Turner versus D'Angelo Russell, Malik Beasley and Jared Vanderbilt. Now, Jared Vanderbilt's very good. I think Miles Turner's a little bit better. Um uh, Malik Beasley's very good. I think Buddy Hield's a little bit better. So the real swing piece in that trade is DeAngelo Russell and you save one pick. Now, what did I say coming into the season? If you guys remember, I was clear. I said, I understand the thought process behind the Lakers waiting. Maybe you get a better deal. But what did I say was the risk? I said the risk was that you were going to dig yourself a hole in the standings and put yourself in a situation where you have to have a a bad uphill climb to get out of that situation. It ended up being even worse than that. 25-31, and LeBron James experiencing foot pain. And the reason why he is experiencing those foot issues is that when Anthony Davis went down, LeBron had to absolutely hit the Jets to a damn near MVP level just to keep the team afloat. And he did, to be clear. The Lakers net rating this year with LeBron James on the floor is I think plus 2.7 per 100 possessions. To give you some perspective, the Milwaukee Bucks for all teams are sixth in net rating, at plus 2.9. So that's the level of play that LeBron's been giving you this year just to float you to six games below 500. So all I'm saying is, like, this might all work out. The team looks great. But LeBron and Anthony Davis have to play at a playoff level now from the middle of February all the way until the end of the season. And you're asking a 38-year-old to do that and an injury-prone center to do that. Again, results tell the story. I say this all the time. The winner tells the story. So this might all work out, and the Lakers might win the title this year, in which case Rob Polinka looks like a genius. But let's say that they, Anthony Davis breaks down because he has to play at a playoff level this whole time, or LeBron James breaks down because he has to play at a playoff level this whole time, while the Celtics can ease their way into the playoffs, while the Bucks can ease their way into the playoffs, while the Nuggets can ease their way into the playoffs. Now we have to push things forward to next year. And Rob Polinka's deals did a nice job providing future flexibility. But I've always said that the urgency is LeBron's late prime. And why? Because if you don't do it this year, you got to do it next year. And if you make it to the finals in 2024, LeBron is 39 and a half years old. And it's, it's very likely that at 39 and a half, he's not quite as capable of carrying you to a championship ceiling as he was in the bubble in 2020. So Rob got his wish, he got a better package, but he paid dearly in the standings, and he paid dearly in wear and tear on his 38-year-old superstar's body. And results will tell the story. But if LeBron James and Anthony Davis break down, I do believe it is associated with the fact that you did not give them this margin for error throughout the season. And that's why I disagreed with that strategy. That's why I would have gone, uh, made the deal this summer, this previous summer, and maybe they're sitting at thirty-one and twenty-five instead. And now you're more concerned about just getting to the playoffs, as opposed to you literally have to go, you know, twenty and six or whatever, just to have an opportunity to get out of the plan. Or asking LeBron James and Anthony Davis to win a must-win game on the road at Golden State potentially. Like, that that's the predicament that they're in. That has to be factored into your calculus of the way that you interpret this trade. But, to be clear, having waited, Rob did some really nice work around the deadline, bringing good players in. On the Golden State front. Now, I talked a lot earlier in the show about the Lakers top-locking and not allowing the shooters to come off the screen, forcing them to back-cut into the rim protection. Um, I would have adjusted to that by doing what the Warriors did to the Boston Celtics, which is lean heavily into pick and roll in isolation. Pick and roll was their most effective play type in the game by far. The Warriors ran 33 pick and rolls tonight for 34 points. Every other play type was below a point per possession. Off-screen plays, 0.69 points per possession. Handoffs, 0.46 points per possession. Post-ups, 0.67 points per possession. All that data is uh, courtesy of Synergy, by the way. Um, I would have leaned into the pick and roll, which obviously was what was working, because in that case, when you have a live ball dribbler coming down off of a ball screen, first of all, Anthony Davis is in drop, so you're going to get some good looks potentially for pull-up shooters, guys like Klay Thompson and Jordan Poole, right? But most importantly, all of your off-ball players, because they're not preparing for coming off of pin downs and stuff, they're sucked into traditional help position. So now if they ignore Draymond and you make that pitch out to him, or if they ignore Looney and you make that pitch out to him, they can quickly flow into those dribble handoffs that get those wide open shots. Because it's not like they're locked up to the shooters off the ball in pick and roll. That would just give Jordan Poole way too much space to operate. They're in traditional help side. They're not locked onto their man. That is what opens up those dribble handoffs for those opportunities. So I would have made that adjustment personally. But to be honest, it's a regular season game. And you're not always going to see those types of adjustments in that setting. And we literally saw in the finals last year, the Warriors go heavy into pick and roll to adjust to Boston running that drop coverage scheme. So it's not a criticism of Steve Kerr. It's just the reality of regular season basketball. Like sometimes you're just going to lean into a game plan because it's not worth diving that far into the weeds. And then honestly, it was also just a poor shooting night. Klay Thompson and Jordan Poole combined to go six for 23 from three. Um, so you kind of just throw it away at that point point. and credit to Lakers. They played really, really well tonight. Um, thoughts on the Gary Payton situation. Super weird. Apparently Golden State thinks Portland didn't properly disclose the injury. There may or may not have been toward all shots being shot into Gary Payton's abdomen every single day, just so he can play, uh, which is obviously a major, major scandal. I-, I think it's a major, major scandal, but it seems to me that the league is basically just saying, take it or leave it. I haven't, uh, I'm not 100% sure, but I've seen some reporting that they're not going to let them adjust the pick compensation. And and so it's a really tough position and it really sucks because the bridge between James Wiseman and the Warriors was already in pretty rough shape and trading him seems to have, you know, you would think theoretically burned that bridge completely. Um, I still think this ends up with the Warriors just accepting the deal, but who knows? We'll see. We got, we're going to find out tomorrow. Um, and in theory, uh, Gary Payton should be available for a postseason run. I've talked a lot about how much I value him, so I'm not gonna get into that today. But the the Warriors are going to have to pivot to the buyout market. Now, what's interesting is the last few years the buyout market has not been very good. Um, but this season it actually shapes up to be pretty interesting. And I think that's a byproduct of how busy the trade market was. Um, I'd be keeping an eye on guys like Danny Green, who potentially could be healthy for a playoff run. Um, I keep an eye on Nerlens Noel potentially getting bought out. Patrick Beverly, although I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of his fit in Golden State, uh, he, his name got brought up on the national broadcast tonight. I first of all, I think Golden State's guards are excellent, and two, he's Patrick Beverly's a little bit of a ball stopper, which doesn't work super well in the Golden State scheme. He doesn't make quick decisions. He kind of catches on the wing and he'll jab step and do that sort of thing um another guy to keep an eye on is Dwayne Deadman. I the the uh the Warriors need a big and I'm not a huge Dwayne Deadman fan but he's kind of one of the only ones that could come available this year um so I, I do think the Warriors will be active in that market and that might have to be the way that they shore up their depth uh before Gary Payton can come back they have a big game at home on uh on Monday against Washington that they have to win all right, moving on to Mavericks-King. So De'Aaron Fox uh, really took this game over down the stretch, uh, making all sorts of little short jump shots in the lane and and made a huge defensive play in a trap on Luka where he shot the passing lane and got a dunk and uh, made a couple floaters as well. I was pulling some data on floaters because it seems like every single De'Aaron Fox floater that he takes goes in. He's shooting 54% on floaters this year. Uh, there are 74 players in the NBA who have taken at least 50 floaters. And Darren Fox is sixth in percentage out of 74 again at 54%. Uh little trivia. Who do you guys think is best in the league at floaters? Nikola Jokic. Just take a wild guess at what the percentage is. It's 70%. Nikola Jokic is shooting 70% on floaters. Uh, every, every single Nikola Jokic stat is, is just is just amazing to me. Um, uh, the reason why i bring that up is downhill guards in particular really fast downhill guards they need something to check up before they get to the rim for a couple of different reasons one it's about wear and tear you don't need to be flying into bodies all the time and trying to finish in traffic it's going to get you into some trouble and two your rim pr- your rim finishing will go down if the rim protector can linger around the rim um, so having that floater the ability to check up short especially with your athleticism to then short uh, to take that little short pop loader in the lane is a great counter to that sort of thing I, I see uh john morant do this a lot as well um but the other big part of it is the mid-range shooting um and darren fox is shooting 44 on twos jump shot twos that are inside the three-point line this year which is excellent and the mavericks just couldn't do anything with him down the stretch of this game uh, another huge element to the uh, king's late game success in this game i thought was terrence davis he did a really nice job ball pressuring Luca. And I thought it was some poor strategy on Dallas's part, which we'll get to here in a minute. Uh, but just by pressuring Luca and having him slowly bring the ball up the floor made it really hard for Dallas to get into situations where they can actually run something like a specific pick and roll or a specific post-up or things along those lines. Because by the time they got the ball up the floor, Luca had to do something quickly. And more often than not, he was just trying to go downhill on Terrence Davis. Um but, you know, for a guy that was giving up a lot of weight to Luca, just by keeping a good, strong base and sliding his feet well, he did a really nice job impacting the game with his ball pressure. What I would have done there is I would have just given the ball to Kyrie and then had him bring the ball up the floor and worked from there. Specifically, I thought the Mavericks' best stuff that they were getting down the stretch of that game was when Luca was in the post. On that right block, you know, with his left hand dribbling, getting ready to shoot over his right shoulder, because the Kings were doubling out of it, and the Mavericks did a nice job of putting Kyrie Irving one pass away. And you know, I I, I noticed this a lot when Kyrie was with the Nets, where they they would have you know because Kevin Durant was one of the best pick and roll ball handlers in the league with the Nets, and what they would do is they'd have they'd have Kyrie set the pick, because then when the trap comes, KD's making that quick pass to Kyrie on the short roll. And it's a four-on-three, but you have one of the best offensive players in the league making that first decision in the four-on-three, and they would just torch teams with that. And I thought the Mavericks were getting really good shots when they would post up Luka, have Kyrie one pass away, so when the double comes, it's that four-on-three, but Kyrie's making that first play, and they got some really good stuff out of that, and then they completely went away from it, which was confusing to me, but... Um, One of the easiest ways to do that is have Kyrie bring the ball up the floor so that you have time for Luka to just jog down to the block and then fight for position against Terrence Davis. Uh, But credit to Terrence Davis. He he did a really nice job impacting the game with his ball pressure. He also hit a huge three in OT um, after the Mavericks jumped out to a three-point lead. The Kings defense has now given up 120-plus points in four straight games. They are 23rd in defense. Um, Again, the Kings are really fun. I always enjoy watching them when I watch them play, but there's a clear ceiling here with their inability to get stops, which really comes down to the front court, in my opinion. Um, One note on the Mavs, too, with their final shot. You know, there's this debate, like, who gets the last shot? And it's, to me, the decision is so simple. When you've got two really great shot creators like that, it's who's got it going? Who's in a rhythm? And what I didn't like about Luca taking that step back three, and you know, again, like for Luca, it's a makeable shot, sure. But like, and I, I saw just an inkling of frustration on Kyrie after the game. I don't know if you guys noticed that, but uh, Kyrie had it going. He had just hit a wild three before. He's been freaking amazing on the offensive end since he put on the jersey. That's one of those moments where it's like you get, you put the ball in Kyrie's hands to try to tie the game there. Um, but we'll we'll see how that shakes out um, over the coming months. Big picture, what I really like about Kyrie's fit with Dallas is he brings real pace and tempo to their offense. Everything Luka does is slow. And, you know, Kyrie is a live ball shot creator that does it out of ISO and pick and roll similar to Luka does, but he's much, much quicker with the way that he does that. You know, if you throw the ball to Luka with 18 seconds left on the shot clock on the left wing, it might take him nine seconds to decide what he's going to do, whether that's a step back or beating his man off the dribble or backing him down into the lane because he's going to use a bunch of dribbles. He's going to turn and pivot a bunch of times. He's going to be very methodical in the way that he does it. And one of the nice things about Kyrie is he does play with real tempo. He's very quick with his decision to attack or to shoot. And there's a couple of different ways that I've seen that help. One, it's kind of like a change of pace. When Luca's off the floor, you saw that a little bit tonight, and you saw that a lot in the two wins. Like Kyrie just immediately walks into Dallas and goes on the road to the Clippers and wins, and goes onto the road on the road to the Kings and wins. That's why you make the superstar trade. And what blew my mind about everything surrounding the Kyrie discussion when when he was when he was available for trade is people continually glossed over the fact that the dude is freaking incredible at basketball. And like, yeah, if you want to have a conversation about the off-court stuff, that's fine. But like as a basketball player, the dude is an all-world talent, and that immediately changes everything about the geometry of your basketball team. That's what allows you to sit Luka to rest an in injury and win on the road against the Western Conference playoff team and then do it again a couple nights later. Um, but it, fundamentally on the basketball court, though, you could even see it when Luka and Kyrie were together, just Luka making quicker decisions and the ball popping around more. And you know, one of the things that I said about Luca, when all this was going down, I said, don't just assume that he can't play a different style. Yes, Luca is very heliocentric and slow paced when he's been running the Mavericks the last few years. But this dude grew up playing professional basketball in Europe. This dude is accustomed to ball movement and passing screen away and running sets. He's done all of that shit his entire life. So, I have no idea why people were just assuming that Luca would be un- incapable of playing that style. And I-, I loved seeing that little bit of different tempo and pace to the way that the Mavericks played with Luca and Kyrie on the floor together. One other guy I wanted to talk about uh, with the Mavs was Josh Green. You know, he came into the league as like a really great athlete, but that was good, strong athlete that's kind of like the modern day wing that's a little bit shorter. Uh, but uh, you know, quicker and more stout and has a lower center of gravity. But he was a real liability in last year's playoffs. And you know, uh, Jason Kidd had some tough decisions in that bench guard role to go with either Frank Nilakina or Josh Green, and neither of them were making the corner threes that the Mavericks were uh, generating for them. And it was a whole thing. Um, but early in the season, I told you guys, you could tell immediately that Josh Green was in the lab all damn summer. Because he had made so many improvements as a ball handler and a shooter. And you saw it every single time you watched the the Mavs play. But I pulled some data today to show you guys just how ridiculous the improvement is. So last year, there were uh, 257 players in the league to have at least 100 spot-up opportunities. And Josh Green ranked 202 out of 257, scoring just 0.92 points per possession in spot-up roles. Or spot-up situations. This year... He's averaging 1.2 points per spot-up possession. There are 195 players who have run at least 100, and he's 24th. So in one summer, he literally went from being one of the very worst spot-up players in the league to one of the very best spot-up players in the league. So, tip of the cap to Josh Green, because I... That, just the, the sheer thousands and thousands and thousands of reps that took this summer to make that type of improvement I think is really, really impressive. Uh, as a team, the Mavericks are still really small, and I don't know if they can hold up physically in a playoff series, but if Maxi Kleba can get healthy, and you look at a lineup of, you know, they went heavy with Reggie Bullock tonight, so theoretically it'd probably be like Maxi Kleba. Uh, they could theoretically go with Powell there, but I think their spacing is better with Kleba. Do You go Kleba. Um, with uh, Josh Green, Reggie Bullock, Luka, Luka Doncic, and Kyrie Irving. Th- if they can just keep games close, that five is going to be a pain in the ass to deal with at the end of games. And they're going to get great shots all the time. So again, I, I don't have them as a top tier championship contender or anything like that. I'm more interested in the Mavericks in the long run. Uh, but man, are they going to be fun to watch. And I'm looking forward to watching the Mavs the rest of the year. All right, guys, we are taking the next two days off for Super Bowl. But we'll be covering Monday night's games on Tuesday morning. And then we'll be doing a show on Tuesday night, breaking down, I believe that one is Celtics Bucks that night. That will be live on amp. Uh the Warriors play the Clippers that night. We'll be breaking that game down on Wednesday morning. Uh so that's just kind of a little look at our first three shows next week. But I enjoy the Super Bowl. I'm on the Eagles. I think they're gonna win by about a touchdown. Um excited to hang out with some friends and enjoy and watch the game and We've done a, it's been a busy week. I was telling my wife this morning, I think we've done eight shows in the last seven days. So I'm looking forward to a couple of days off, but I'm also very, very excited for the stretch run with you guys. As always, I sincerely appreciate the sport, and I will see you guys next time. The Volume.